Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am a journalist, and I am here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And we're talking about a topic that I know a lot of you are interested in because we've gotten a slew of emails asking roughly the same question, which is, how did we get this Bible? How did we get the books that are in what we call the New Testament canon? Why were the other ones left out? And we have a great guest and a great discussion about that today. Helen, did you did you know all of this already? I didn't know any of this, what, what uh, Francis was telling us. Yeah, I did know quite a lot about it, I have to say. But um, it, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you do, you know, as a New Testament scholar, you you have to know about these things, you know, have to know about the New Testament. Um, <laughs> but but it is, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating um, historical thing. And, and, and all these other texts too, you know, that 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 could have got in, you know, some of the that there's there's as 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 we're going to hear, there's a sort of a core mm-hmm. that that you know makes up the the main thing. But on the edges, there's all these other texts that we mm-hmm. might have had this, we might have had that, we we might not have had Revelation, for example. So, I mean, it it is really interesting that the sort of the history of it, it didn't just drop from above <laughs> as people sometimes think, you know, already translated into English. It's um it it, it took a long time and. and and actually, very late before before we actually had the the the, the canon that we would recognise today. Yeah. Oh, you know what I didn't ask Francis about, but maybe it's too late for his thing. And, and maybe we should do a whole episode on is the King James Bible. I'm very interested uh, in how yeah, that came yeah, about. I mean, that's pretty late for our typical biblical time machine. But, but I think as as a bunch of English speakers, that should be very interesting to us. Anyway. Today we, we will talk- be able to get lots of people too, too, because you know it just recently had its was it four hundredth or fifteen hundredth anniversary. So there are people sort of out there who specialize, and we, we that I think that'd be good. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, today we are going to talk with Francis Watson. Francis is a professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University, and he's written a couple books about the New Testament canon. One of them is called uh, Gospel Writing: A Canonical Perspective. And the other one is called The Fourfold Gospel, A Theological Reading of the New Testament Portraits of Jesus. And uh, Francis does, he thinks very deeply about this idea of having four gospels telling the same story and and kind of what it means spiritually and, and kind of how it came together historically. So he's, he's a wonderful guest to have about this. I want to shout out a listener, Harry Hansen. Harry Hansen was one of several people who emailed with the idea of having an episode about the New Testament canon and how it came together. And I also want to shout out another one of our Time Travelers Club members, uh, Elliot Conrad. Um, Elliot and I have sent each other a couple messages, and he is an Episcopal priest. Did I say that right? Episcopal. He is an Episcopal mm-hmm. <laughs> priest in uh, in New York, and and he and he finds our conversations interesting, and it adds some depth to his his study of of the Bible. So, Helen, we're doing a real service, aren't we? <laughs> I hope so. Well, I just hope people find this interesting. Well, if they if they listen this long, then hopefully they find it interesting. <laughs> but let's not let's not drag it out anymore. Let's let's get to our conversation with Francis Watson about the New Testament canon. Well, Francis Watson, welcome to Biblical Time Machine. 
Thank you very much. All right. I, I like to start with the basics because I'm a basic kind of person. So we use this word canon. I often misspell it uh, <laughs> because there's different <laughs> ways to spell canon. What does the word canon mean when we're talking about a biblical canon? Well, it starts off by, me, by meaning a kind of rule, um, huh? often, often in the physical sense of a ruler, if you want to draw a straight line, if you're building a house or something. Hmm. Um, but then it develops a whole set of additional meanings. And for our purposes, think about the Bible. What it really means is a list. And the function of a list is to identify certain items which are legitimately on the list, authoritative texts, uh, but also the list will be finite. So there'll be a whole lot of stuff that isn't on the mm -hmm. list. So the function of a canon is to include the material, the text that you think, or that someone thinks should be included, uh, but to leave others unmentioned and therefore off the list. So being off the list is in one sense as significant as being on the list. But that's basically what a canon is. It, it is a list, a list of authoritative books, right. books deemed to be authoritative by someone. Maybe we'll discuss who, who that someone is later. <laughs> who was this person? Who did it? <laughs> We've sort of got two canons at this point, haven't we? We've got a, a, an Old Testament canon and a New Testament canon, or a, a Hebrew Bible canon and a New Testament canon. Uh, when Was there already a, a Hebrew Bible canon by the time of early Christianity? Was that fixed already? But that's that's very hard to say. So on the one hand, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, where there's a whole mm. lot of material that we regard as Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, but lots of other stuff as well, like the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch, etc. Did they distinguish between the authority of what we would regard as the canonical books and books that we might regard as not canonical? I think that's unclear. What you do get in Jewish tradition is something that's picked up by Christians, and that's that there is a fixed number of books in an Old Testament canon. So we do get the beginnings of an idea of canon here. And that number of books is equivalent to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, <laughs> which is 22. Um, but is that just chance who, or is that deliberate? <laughs> uh, well, the person who introduces this idea is, so, so far as I know, Josephus, but he doesn't tell us what the books are. But um, Christian writers who are trying to produce a list of uh, Old Testament books all follow that convention of the 22 books. Mm. But in order to squeeze the however many books it is in the New Testament into 22, you've got to combine some of them and, and, and do some sort of fancy footwork. Um, but there is the idea of the fixed list present there. It's got to be 22, however you reach that, that number. And the difference between that and, and, and the New Testament canon is that no one really thinks in terms of a kind of magic number, except perhaps the number four for the Gospels, but there's no kind of magic about the number 27. No one says it has to be 27 because that's three nines, and three nines is hugely significant spiritually for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's, let's jump ahead to this, the, to what we call you know, the New Testament. So around what time do we think were people starting to be concerned with the very idea of taking these texts that we have, we have the Gospels and we have the letters of Paul and all these things. At, at what point do we have any evidence that the people were concerned about compiling them into a single, a single canon? Well, I don't think we have a New Testament uh, until the 4th century, hmm. but the New Testament is made up of several uh, sub-collections 
if you like, they're now sub-collections from the standpoint of the completed New Testament. The earliest actually would be the Pauline letter collection, mm. uh, which originally circulated in longer or shorter form, so it may well have circulated without Hebrews, without the pastoral epistles, 1, 2 Timothy and, 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 and Titus. Uh, but one way or another, the Pauline letter collection does get established fairly early. Um, then the next collection to be established is the most important of all, that's the Four Gospel a collection defined for the first time by Irenaeus, bishop in Lyon, in southern Gaul or France, um, the last quarter or so of the second century. Uh, the third uh, collection to solidify as a collection is the so-called Catholic Epistles. That's um, uh, James, Peter and John, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John and, 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 and Jude. And that really is a third century collection, um, which because it forms up rather late is actually quite controversial. And Eusebius, the great church historian of the late 3rd, early 4th century, uh, uh, rejects that mm. uh, a collection. So the New Testament as we know it is made up really of those three collections which become sub-collections within the New Testament, leaving only Acts and Revelation um, as if you like to attach texts and acts, it's easy to attach to the uh, four Gospels. Revelation can't really be attached to anything very much, and maybe that's par <laughs> part of the reason why uh, Revelation actually had a very hard time getting into the New Testament uh, at all. I've heard people say that the whole of the um, Pauline epistles can, can fit onto one role, and that was sort of one of the reasons why they were put together and circulated quite widely. Do you think is there any mileage in that? Is there, or are there any sort of practical reasons for these smaller collections, do you think, like that? Or is that nothing well, I'm, really? I, the only evidence we have from, from manuscripts is that uh, whether it's Pauline letters or Testament texts or Gospels, they are almost all written in codices. Mm, and, yeah. and a codex can be expanded uh, to include a huge amount of uh, material. So I don't think there's any kind of particular practical reason uh, of, uh, of that kind. Uh, I think letter collections were an established format in the wider world. We know of you know letters by Seneca and and, and Pliny and, and, and so on. Um, uh, a little bit after Paul, there's the letters of Ignatius in the Christian context. So letter collections are just something you can do with individual letters uh, when you want to perpetuate them as a as a literary work in their own right. You put them together, and that gives them, of course, greater weight uh, than if they just circulate separately. So whoever puts them together is part of an attempt to perpetuate the image of Paul as the great apostle alongside whoever writes the book of Acts, who is also about securing an ongoing legacy for uh, Paul, who hmm. might otherwise have been forgotten for all we mm, know. But amazing because, of, because, of, because <laughs> of his his admirers, several decades later, uh, Paul remains the uh, massively significant figure that we still take him to have been. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's very interesting to me. I mean, I it, it, take, it took me a while to wrap my brain around the very idea of, you know, Paul being the first person, our first sort of Christian author. And I, I think that does come to a lot of people as a surprise. But then to think about his letters even circulating, you know, before the Gospels or at the same time mm -hmm. that the first Gospels might have been written. I don't, I don't know. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, it, here's here's something. And this actually came up in our conversation with John Cleese. Francis, did you know that we talked to John Cleese? <laughs> I did not. You didn't? Wow. I thought everybody knew. I, 
I, I, I won't be. I won't be as amusing, but I may not be as I may not be as controversial. Or maybe I will be. Maybe let's see if we can man, get some hot takes. But no, but something that John said that I think is 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 a familiar idea in a lot of our heads is like wasn't the New Testament put together kind of by this you know group of of experts, not even experts, maybe, anyway, the the Council of Nicaea often gets thrown around, like, wasn't it put together by the Council of Nicaea? So, is this idea, is there any credence to this idea that there was a group of people that sat down and decided, these books are going to be in, these books are going to be out, or is there another process by which we kind of got this, this canon that we have? Well, the Council of Nicaea has got nothing to do with it at all, because <laughs> that was interested in uh, defining who Jesus Christ is, whether he's a creaturely being, as the much derided Arians thought, or whether he's fully divine. Uh, so we can forget about the Council of Nicaea, uh, but there is a sense in which the New Testament, in the sense of a fixed list containing a fixed number of books, uh, is a kind of imposition from above, but not by a council, uh, but by individual uh, highly authoritative Christian leaders. So the first person to define a 27-book New Testament and to list exactly the, the same 27 books as will turn up in our modern New Testaments mm-hmm. is uh, Athanasius, who's an extraordinarily important uh, and very contentious and controversial 4th-century um, uh, bishop in Alexandria. And he produces in the year um, 369 uh, the uh, list, sorry, 367, uh, his so-called 39th uh, festal letter, where he uh, not only produces a list of 27 books, but also a rationale for it. Yeah. And the rationale is in part that if you read, if his recipients read uh, just these books, uh, that will save them from wasting their time reading books <laughs> that may well be heretical um, and that they should never have been reading in the first place. Uh, so he's actually trying to clamp down on hmm. the rather sort of um, eclectic reading habits that he ascribes to his fellow Christians in Egypt and tells them that they shouldn't be reading uh, books with prestigious names like, you know, Paul or Thomas, Gospel of Thomas or whatever, mm. um, Acts of Paul. They shouldn't be reading those those books. They should only be reading books on his prescribed list. Uh, so in that sense, there is some truth in the suspicion that the New Testament is a kind of top-down construction uh, imposed on people, but not by a council, but by uh, individual Christian leaders. And gradually a consensus forms. You find very similar lists in... Uh, contemporary or um, uh, slightly later figures in the West, Jerome and Augustine, for example, who are in more or less complete agreement with uh, Athanasius. So we have, like, Athanasius's... <laughs> I can't say his name. <laughs> Do we... that Did that letter survive? Are copies of that original letter in we, circulation? We, we, we have it. The central bit of it, where, where he does his, his, wow. his lists, uh, is uh, preserved in the original Greek, or something close to the original Greek. Much more of it is preserved in, in Coptic. So Coptic is the language spoken in uh, Egypt during the Roman uh, uh, period. Uh, so the further south you go in Egypt, the more people are likely to be speaking a dialect, one dialect rather of Coptic rather than Greek. So it gets translated probably in a mon- monastic context mm. into, into Coptic. And uh, probably about 80%, maybe even 90% of the letter survives in uh, Coptic to add to that shorter Greek portion. So I want to know more about these spurious, um, contentious texts. You know, which which were these texts and, and, and do we know much about them? Are they, are they still preserved today? 
how how do we know which ones um, were were being sort of excluded by this list? Well, I get the impression that as the early church grows in numbers during the second century, that there is a massive demand for more and more literature about Jesus or about the apostles. And it seems there are plenty of authors who are prepared to meet those demands. Um, so for every sort of category of New Testament writing, gospel, um, acts, apostolic acts, epistles, apocalypse, for every category, uh, you have multiple additional works in that same category. So there's a gospel of Thomas, a gospel of Mary, a gospel of Peter. There are acts ascribed to individual apostles. Uh, Peter, Paul and Thomas happen to be my personal favourites, but there are <laughs> other ones as well. Uh, there are additional letters. There's a, even a letter called the Epistula Apostolorum, the letter of the apostles, from all of the apostles <laughs> together. You can't get more authoritative than a letter addressed by all of the apostles to all Christians everywhere. You don't uh, even have to take... list them, just all of them. <laughs> well, they do get listed. Oh, um, do you? But, uh, but they, 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 they do indeed, yes. Um, and these texts were extremely popular, which is why they yeah. get translated into multiple languages. And in many cases, we only have them uh, because they were preserved in translation uh, by communities which were less stressed by their existence <laughs> than people like Athanasius, who would want to stamp them out and to dissuade people from copying these things and be reducing them any further. Um, so there's a massive amount of this literature. It's impossible to say how much there is, but the New Testament represents, I would guess, a really pretty small proportion of literature written by Christians during this century from, say, 50 to 150. And most of this wasn't heretical, was it? I mean, you know, it was perfectly fine, wasn't it? Well, heresy always has to be defined. <laughs> so as soon as her heresy is defined, then things retrospectively become heretical. But <laughs> initially, people are just exploring different ways of interpreting this exciting new Christian faith, and they don't all agree. And we find that within the New Testament collection itself, all kinds of different perspectives and uh, attitudes towards things uh, there. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, there is just this explosion of literature, um, especially in those formats that I mentioned, the Gospels, Apostolic Acts, uh, Epistles and uh, Apocalypses. And some of, the, some, some of those texts come really quite close to inclusion. So a text like the Apocalypse of Peter, extremely popular and influential, influential for a very long time, but doesn't get in, but might well have formed a pair with the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse mm. of, of John. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think for me, it's fascinating to try to think about, like you said, this, this very fertile time in early Christianity when kind of everybody who had a, had a pen was trying to write, you know, their own, their own take on this. Do you, Obviously, there weren't that many people who were literate. So I'm trying to imagine, like, do we have, can we reconstruct it all? Kind of what, like, how these would have been, you know, distributed, not even distributed, but how they would have been read to people. Like, would people have just been gathered in, in synagogues or in various meeting places and they said, hey, I got this, this new text and let me read it to you guys. Like, do we think that's kind of how they were, they were shared? Well, there is a, a, a practice of reading Christian gospel literature, at least in a church context. We know that from as early as uh, Justin Marty, who describes a, what sounds very like a, 
a Eucharistic uh, service, in fact, probably was a Eucharistic service, uh, during which not only prophetic writings from the Old Testament, but also uh, gospel uh, writings and memoirs of the apostles, as Justin calls them, hmm. were um, read. Uh, so uh, some early Christian literature gets read from really quite early in a liturgical context like that. Uh, but I imagine that there are vast numbers of early Christians who have enough literacy, enough uh, 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 reading skills uh, to um, appreciate reading literature in their own homes. The Roman Empire in general, I'd say, is almost like the most literate society that the world had ever known. So mm. there are masses of people there who uh, engage with books one way or another. Even if they can't write, they know about books. They appreciate it when books are read. So in that sense, they are uh, at least on the way towards uh, literacy. Mm. Uh, so I think sometimes we assume wrongly that, mm. that, that it's only some tiny, you know, 1%, elite 1% who are really, who are engaging with books at all. And that simply can't be the case. And we know that because uh, there's such a range of books, some written for people who are not well educated. The Gospel of Mark is written for people without much of an education, I think, to, to appreciate. Uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts try to operate on a higher cultural level. So there is a a range of different levels, social levels, educational levels, uh, in which people can engage one way or another with with uh, books. So, would you say the sort of the whole canonical, non-canonical thing is is fairly arbitrary in the end? I mean, I guess it was important at the time, or at least in the fourth century, and 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 has been important to the church in subsequent centuries. But but to scholars looking at early Christian history, would you make any particular distinction between things that are in and things that are out? Because, I mean, presumably some of the things that are out are even earlier than some of the things that are in. They, they may well be. Uh, there's no reason to think that the Gospel of Thomas is necessarily, you know, much later than, say, the Gospel of, of, um, of John. John could be quite late, yeah. It could be quite late. I think I'd resist the word... Arbitrary, though, because in order to get into, in order for gospel to get within the four gospel collection, it needs to have circulated very widely. Uh, so if it's been extremely popular in Egypt or even just the East Mediterranean, it hasn't broken through into the Western Mediterranean, if it isn't known uh, really very widely indeed, um, it will not be on Arrhenius' list of four approved gospels. So that means that a gospel text has to establish itself in use over a period of time and over a wide geographical area. Uh, and for whatever reason, some texts do that. They establish themselves very firmly indeed, uh, and others don't. We can't tell why, uh, but that's often the case if we think of literary parallels or maybe musical uh, uh, parallels. As a musician myself, classical musician, <laughs> I'm interested in the fact that uh, Beethoven's nine symphonies are right at the heart of the classical orchestral canon. There are plenty of other people writing perfectly good symphonies in Beethoven's time and before, before and since, whose names are sort of barely known, like uh, Louis Spohr and people like that. Why was Beethoven decide? Why did anyone decide that Beethoven was going to be canonical and Spohr not? It's hard to say, but it happened, and I think we have to respect that fact, and we have not to reach too easily to the term. Uh, arbitrary, because the decisions have been made not just by individuals, but by uh, a, a whole range of 
communities which are barely known to us, but they must have been there. So these texts just must have established themselves in very widespread communal usage. So in that case, in, in that sense, even Athanasius is not being entirely arbitrary because he's not just selecting texts he happens to like. He's selecting texts which are very, very firmly embedded in Christian communal life. Yeah. No, that's. I think that's a very important mm. point to make and something, I think, important for our listeners to understand. That, yes, there were people at some point that were making distinctions between canonical and non-canonical, but for the texts to have risen even to that point, they had to have been in wide circulation and because they were enjoyed and they were they were popular and people exactly had you know received you know spiritual uh inspiration from them um all right so i we this is something else we've talked about on the podcast but i know that you have written a lot about the fourfold gospel so as we know we have not one uh, story of the life of jesus but we have four of them in the new testament is that unusual um to have to have you know four different takes on sort of the same man's life in in the same book or is it not as unusual as we think and does it you know serve a certain purpose do you think that was very consciously you know done let's let's include all four of these even if some of them tell the same thing over and over again well, as I was saying, these four books are the ones that establish themselves firmly within a wide range of Christian communities. So in that sense, no one, no individual sort of chooses them. So Irenaeus is sort of identifying that this has happened and making it explicit for the, for the uh, first time. Mm. But you're right, it is a very strange phenomenon. The same story told differently uh, four times over. Very much the same story. Of course, massive differences as well, but it is recognisably the same story. And there were trends within the early church uh, where uh, people expressed uh, anxiety about that Hmm. multiple gospel construct and tried to reduce the authoritative story of Jesus to a single gospel. One example of that is the second century um, so-called heretic uh, Marcion, uh, who's uh, communities operate just with what we would regard as a, uh, a slimmed down version of the Gospel of Luke, and for them that is just that is their gospel. They oh, okay. don't have other gospels. Uh, another uh, uh, attempt is made to reduce the four gospels to a singular gospel by blending them all into each other and producing a composite work called the Diatessaron, which actually functions as the gospel in Syriac communities for several centuries. So in the Syriac community, it's the Deuteron that is much more influential than the four gospels Hmm. until maybe the fifth century. So there were people who were worried about the plurality of the gospels. I think it's fascinating. I think it's counterintuitive. You would not expect it to have happened. (laughs) Uh, I think one of the effects of this is that no single gospel can claim to be definitive. Uh, I think one or two of the evangelists, naming no names, might have <laughs> liked to regard their Gospels as the definitive <laughs> Gospel. But if so, they don't get away with it mm-hmm. because they find themselves in the company of three other, in many cases, rather different Gospels. Uh, so I think the way that the individual Gospel is relativized by the mm-hmm. others so that there is no single authoritative and definitive portrayal of Jesus, so that Jesus is always seen from sort of multiple perspectives, is actually quite interesting, not to say theologically profound. Mm. 
so I love the fact that there are four Gospels, uh, four canonical <laughs> Gospels. I also love the fact that there are plenty of other Gospels that are not canonical Gospels, but I remain a big fan of the four Gospel uh, construct, uh, which would not have been what any of the individual evangelists expected. Right. We might have been horrified by horrified. I think it's great. <laughs> Yeah, and in a way that sort of gives permission, doesn't it? If 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 none of them are are going to be seen as the definitive um, gospel, then it sort of gives permission for all of those later texts, doesn't it? You can all sort of write your own or your hmm. own version, and at least claim some level of authority for it. Yes, that, that's that, that's certainly true, and and, and uh, the Gospel of John more or less says that in the end when it says that many other many books others, could have been written, yeah. and uh, if that's not an invitation to keep writing, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what is. <laughs> So we have a, a listener question now, yes. uh, and it's a great one. Mary Daniel asks, why were the books of the New Testament placed in the order that they are? So that's really clever, isn't it? Because so they're, they're not chronological, are they? Um, at least not in terms of when they were written. So, so, so why do we get this order? We've got to go back to the sub-collections from which our New Testament collection is formed. So we shouldn't be thinking of the New Testament as a whole. Uh, initially, we should be thinking of how it comes to be the New Testament. So we start with four Gospels. And Arrhenius, who I mentioned before, late second century, uh, li lists the four evangelists. He's the first person to do so that we know of. In the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he does think it's chronological. Mm. He thinks that um, Mark writes after uh, Peter's uh, death. Matthew, however, has been written during Peter's lifetime, hmm. uh, and John writes last of all. So there is a tradition of chronological order underlying the familiar sequence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though we don't probably believe anymore that that was the right chronological order. We all, I think, put Mark first. Uh, there is that tradition which, which establishes that order. There's also an alternative a tradition, very popular in the West for some time, for several centuries, in which the order was Matthew, John, Luke and Mark. And that's not chronological. Uh, that is privileging the two directly apostolic Gospels, Matthew and John, or traditionally apostolic mm. Gospels, uh, over against the other two. In the case of the Pauline Letters, which is you know another major New Testament collection, the order seems to have been... Uh, in terms of length, so the longest ones mm. first, uh, down to the shortest. So Romans being the longest comes first, Philemon being the shortest comes last. There is the awkward question of what to do with Hebrews, because there's debate in the early church about whether Paul wrote it. If you really think Paul wrote it, you're going to put Hebrews somewhere near the top of the list because it's pretty long. Mm. If you think that it's a bit dubious, you'll put it somewhere near the bottom of the list. Uh, but basically, it's in order or in descending order of, of, of length. With the Catholic epistles, the third collection, James, Peter, uh, 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 John, but in some versions it's Peter, Peter, James and John, and uh, followed by Jude. So that's privileging the three disciples who in the, uh, certainly the Synoptic Gospel tradition, are given a privileged status, Peter, James and John, over the uh, others. So there's some influence of that tradition in the formation of that third sub-collection within the New Testament. Uh, so I think the order of the New Testament arises um, out of the order of those sub-collections. And the whole thing is held together, really, by the book of Acts, which sort of bridges mm. the gulf between mm. Gospels and Pauline and other apostolic letters. 
And what about Revelation at the end? Because it's sort of looking to the future and it doesn't really fit in with anything else particularly? I suppose so. Uh, also, perhaps a, an indication of its slightly marginal status. And just to say a little bit about that, uh, it is a text which Eusebius, as I say, the great 4th century church historian, who's really the first person that we know of to be interested in an authoritative list of definitely okay New Testament books. <laughs> um, he's really very uncertain about the book of Revelation and he's cautious as well, so he doesn't want to denounce it, but he does include very, very long excerpts from a third century bishop of Alexandria called Dionysius, who is very sceptical about whether uh, the book of Revelation attributed to John, believe I'm into the Apostle John, could really have been written by the same person that wrote allegedly, the gospel according to John. Uh, and if you can undermine a text apostolic authorship in the early church, that more or less does for that text. Uh, so it's not going to get included in the collection. So Revelation may, may come last uh, because not everyone thought it should be there at all. And you do get one or two uh, lists of New Testament books in the second half of the fourth century, containing just 26 books rather than 27. And if there is a missing book, it's going to be Revelation. Mm. Oh, well, thanks for, yeah, thanks for adding that context because that was something I was, I was very curious about. I think a lot of people are too. It was like, that one, that one seems different. So it, it's, mm. it's, I guess it has struck people as different for a very long time. <laughs> we're not the first ones. All right. So we're having you on because we want you, we're going to put together a whole new Bible and we want you. <laughs> <laughs> to choose if there were some books that were left out of that are currently non-canonical do you do you think any of them maybe deserve a spot in the canon well there is such a such a lot to choose from mm. a popular choice so it's not just me and my personal preferences <laughs> i come on to my personal preferences in a moment popular choice would be uh, the Acts of Paul, but probably not the whole Acts of Paul, but the bit that people in the early church and still to this day really love, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, where mm. this uh, female, young female character, uh, uh, Thecla, is converted by Paul's preaching and kind of becomes a disciple of Paul, but she also develops more significantly her own independent uh, trajectory through the narrative. She gets through uh, a range of... Um, uh, difficult and demanding circumstances. She's nearly martyred, uh, and she's a magnificent character. And Paul is kind of there in the background. Mm. And uh, Paul and Thecla, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, is still an extremely popular text. And so, if that were to be included in the New Testament, uh, I'm sure there'd be howls of outrage from some quarters, but uh, many people would uh, uh, welcome it. If I were allowed to make a personal choice, a text that I am uh, currently working on, um, and that um, hardly anyone else is, uh, there is the Gospel of Truth. Uh, preserved for us from the Nag Hammadi uh, collection. And um, I thought I'd just read you, if this is okay, oh, the first four verses mm -hmm. of this, so you can get some sense of the, I think, the literary and the theological quality and the depth of this text, which <laughs> I'm one of the few people in the world who's actually enthusiastic about. So here's how it starts. And you can think of the beginning of John's Gospel, which I think has quite a similar tone. So this text begins, The Gospel of Truth is joy to those who have received grace from the Father of Truth, that they may know him in the power of the word who came forth from the fullness and the thought and mind of the, of the Father. 
who is called Saviour, referring to the work he must do for the redemption of those who did not know the Father, while Gospel refers to the revelation of hope so that those who seek him may find. So whatever all that means, <laughs> it is clearly rhetorically powerful. It is working with established Christian terminology, gospel, truth, joy, grace, all familiar from the beginning of John's gospel. Uh, this is a serious text and I love it. And um, as I say, I'm working on it. And uh, if I can persuade uh, at least a small number, maybe just single figures of people to take it. <laughs> Well, our, our listenership is in, is in the single figures. So, no, we, we have more than that. We'll, we'll get we'll get a few supporters. Nag, so Nag Hammadi, I think you can get away with that. Yeah. Yes. Are those? Are, I, I, I associate the word Gnostic with like Nag Hammadi. Is this is the Gospel yes, of Truth a Gnostic text, or is that kind of a blurry category? Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, it is not a Gnostic text. Okay. Some people will tell you it is. Uh, I will tell you that they're wrong. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> See, now you're taking some, you're taking some hot, hot stances. I am, yes. Francis, we ask everybody this at the end. We we do actually have a time machine. I know you're you're a little bit sceptical, aren't you? But we can take you back <laughs> to wherever you would like to go, or even into the future, if that's what you oh, prefer. Oh, yeah, nobody's done so, that. No, no one's been forward. You could, you could go in the future to the time of Revelation, <laughs> whenever that might be, <laughs> or we could take you back. So um, where would you like to go? Well, uh, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> I was telling you before this uh, uh, interview, this discussion started, that I was very glad you'd given me time to think about <laughs> this. Let me preface this, and this will make sense eventually, Uh, by saying that I have an interest in the so-called synoptic problem, the relationship between Matthew, Mark and Luke, and I'm one of a, I think, a growing number of people who are sceptical of the so-called Q hypothesis, Mm -hmm. according to which uh, material in Matthew and Luke that they don't get from Mark is derived from a now lost document consisting mainly, although not entirely, of sayings of Jesus, which was given the title Q, short for German Quelle, which just means source, Uh, by modern scholars from the late 19th century onwards. Uh, So I'm personally interested in the idea that Luke actually is using the text of Matthew as well as Mark. That may sound as if it has nothing to do with a time machine, but (laughs) if you just hang on a moment, I hope that it will make sense. If you presented me with a time machine, I would be very cautious before entering it. I wouldn't want to go too far. So going back to... The life of Jesus, yes, it would be tempting, but I think that's it's a long way. Oh. I would not want to travel that that, that far. Lots of bugs and bacteria. Uh, lots of bugs and bacteria. Oh, I think the risk would not be worth taking. I'd also <laughs> be worried about the linguistic thing. My Aramaic is not fluent. Fluent, in fact, it's non-existent, so <laughs> not be able to communicate. Um, so I'm going to go not very far, and I'm going to go somewhere where they speak English. And in fact, I'm going to back, go back to my own college in Oxford, Christchurch, uh, around about the year 1900, when the Dean Island professor, uh, William Sanday, held a regular seminar, which actually ran over a period of years. Uh, the best known member of which, apart from Sanday himself, was uh, B.H. Streeter, who established the what became almost a kind of canonical version of the solution to the synoptic problem in the 20th century, according to which Matthew and Luke both have two texts, uh, Mark and uh, Q. I would love to visit that seminar and uh, try to persuade Streeter and Sanday and the other Q's uh, enthusiasts that Q never existed. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I 
know the room in which it must have taken place. I know the college. I know the city. I would feel at home there. I'd have to change my... I'd have to dress up a bit differently, perhaps. I can see you now, Credible, credible yeah. member of that seminar. But I think I could operate in, a, in, a, in an Oxford seminar context circa 1900 and... Um, you know, make a few points and then leave. Wouldn't make any difference, of course, because it's already fixed. But I'd, I'd, I'd feel happier at least to put in a good word for, for Luke, having uh, uh, used very creatively the text of Matthew's Gospel as he writes his own Gospel. That's where I would go in my nice. time machine. Wow. Yeah. Very cautious. Yeah, what but is, it's like a, it's a great suggestion. But like an academic butterfly effect. Now I can see you show up. You kind of drop your microphone. You're like, no way does that exist. And then suddenly you come back to our time and there's no books about Q. This never happened. <laughs> You've totally erased it from history. That would be, that would be very interesting. That would be the. That would, have to be, that would have to be a very clever time machine, which could actually erase the past that becomes the future when I travel to the past. That's what so, happens. So I'm very, I mean, as we yeah, yeah. very seen impressed. enough movies. That is what happens. <laughs> Have you not seen I'm very um, impressed by your time machine. <laughs> what's what's that one with uh, what's his name? Michael J. Fox, where he goes back. Back to the future. <laughs> back to the future, exactly. Yeah. That's what happens. That's it what always happens. happens with a time machine. It's a very right. <laughs> well, I'll let you know when I've been there what it was like oh, and what they said. <laughs> we'll have you back. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Francis, uh, this has been terrific. I, I know that our our listeners have been clamoring to have a better understanding of how their Bibles came together, and I think you've you've done an excellent job of shining light on you know what what was a long and and complicated process. But uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. So thank you, Francis. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, listeners. And we will see everyone on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. If you're enjoying Biblical Time Machine, consider supporting us through a membership in our Time Travelers Club. For just $5 a month, you get access to all sorts of bonus content, and you can message us, and it's really fun, and you become our new best friends. Um, but really, you get to support what we do here, and we really appreciate it. If you are curious what this Time Travelers Club is all about, just go to the link in the episode description below and find out. Thanks again. Thanks again.